0: Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is and yearly preparation for heaven. We've been talking the last few weeks, and it's fine if you didn't see those Bible studies, but I try to make each one stand alone. But we've talked about heaven, the heaven project. We talked about hell. We talked about the sorting that happens after death. And now I want to focus on how we prepare and a particular, a-, a particular aspect of our preparation here in this life. And at the risk of repeating some things I've said before, uh, in my view, in Swedenborg's view, Scripture teaches that our survival of death is immediate, personal and permanent. Uh, so there's no separately created race of angels. That's just us up there. And if you really embrace that idea, then our life in this world becomes very important because this is a preparation here going there and we've got this time in in this world and then we die it's appointed man wants to die and then the judgment we're here we go to the other world and so the way that we live our lives now makes a difference to the situation that we're going to be in after death and i think that's a really fundamental message of of scripture and it's more than just having faith in particular i wanted to single out one teaching which is that uh, there's been the thought in christianity for a long time Um, let me turn on the recorder that would be good Sorry. Uh, that uh, there's been a thought in Christianity for a long time that yes repentance is important and uh, it really would be most effective if you wait till you've got about six breaths left in this world you know if you can just hold off until that last minute so it doesn't really matter how you spend your life but um it, but that that idea of deathbed repentance does put a put a kind of burden like what if you're riding on a bus and a bomb goes off and you oh oops you know I mean it's risky you know that that counts on the fact that you know you're going to go or so you know you have some idea of how close it is um, it's kind of a risky thing and uh, there's also some teaching that we'll look at in a minute uh, that it's if there's no background before that moment of, of repentance, if there's been no turning to God or anything, it's not necessarily going to do what, what you're hoping it's going to do. We'll look at that in a moment. So instead, what I think Scripture is teaching, particularly what we we'll would be talking about tonight, is that particularly in the daily sacrifices in the Old Testament, and also there were these three feasts, three feasts that were compulsory every year, And we'll be looking at these three feasts and what this means about our preparation for heaven. So if you're willing to join me on that journey, let's open with a prayer. Shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth, the divine human, God made flesh, We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. You are the word. We pray for your power to open our eyes on the meaning of your word. Give us lessons in our hearts and minds, Lord, of how you would have us live going forward from today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, good friends. Good to see you. Sending out love to those of you online and on the audio and uh, the podcast and so on. Uh, Very good to be with you. Uh, I want to deal first of all with this idea of deathbed repentance briefly because that's what we're saying is not the way. There's a rather harsh statement toward the end of your Bible that I'd like to bring your attention to. Uh, If you go to Revelation all the way in the right, the back of the Bible, and back up from there, you go through Jude and the epistles of John, and I want you to get to 2 Peter. In fact, it's 2 Peter, chapter 2 verse 22 two Peter 2 22 is what I want to go look at and uh, we'll read a few verses before that uh, Peter's been railing about people who are are bad um, uh, I don't know let's let's start at verse all the way back at verse I don't know look at verse 10 there um,
1: and especially Those, uh, am I in the right place? Sure. Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Yes. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Hmm. But these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly and will utterly perish in their own corruption, mm. and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Yes,
0: that's <laughs> one to watch out for. Go on.
1: They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery. What an
0: amazing phrase.
1: And that cannot cease from sin.
0: Mm. They cannot cease from sin. Mm-hmm.
1: Enticing unstable souls. Mm. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children.
0: Yes, and it goes on in this vein and so forth. And look down at verse 20. So listen to this.
1: For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
0: Okay, so it's possible if you're living that type of lifestyle, which lots of us do at certain times in our lives and so on, but if you manage to escape from that, what an amazing word. What did you say? Pollutions?
1: Pollutions. Of the wow.
0: World. If if you manage to escape from the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if yes, after if that,
1: after that, they are again entangled in them. Oh, in the pollutions. Yes. And overcome. Oh, oh. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning.
0: Yes, this is like some of the things in the Gospels about you know one evil spirit leaves and then seven come back and then move in. Go on.
1: For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them.
0: And then listen to this lovely proverb at Mm. the end.
1: But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire.
0: Yeah, lovely, isn't it? Sort of an arresting image. (laughs) Uh, And I think what it's talking about is that if you have that love of evil, if you're comfortable with that, you can sort of, there's a danger that you'll get away from it and then you'll just go right back. And I'm applying this tonight to uh, a deathbed repentance. If you really, if we really live our whole lives in uh, all those kind of things it was talking about, eyes full of adultery, can't stop sinning and all that kind of thing. If that's how we live the whole of our lives and we delight in that and we enjoy it and we reinforce it and, and we, you know, grow and develop in that. Uh, when we're feeling terrified at the end of our life, and we're having health problems, and and, and we're worried, and we say a prayer of like, oh, "I'm I'm sorry, I you know, like I, sh- I shouldn't have lived the way that I lived," and I'm I'm worried about going to hell or or whatever it is. Um, unfortunately, Swedenborg says from his experience of seeing people on the other side, that is uh, less than effective. Uh, It's not that there can't be some sort of turning around, and the Lord is always trying to reach us, but there's a kind of a particular version of what they call a foxhole prayer, um, where it's in a state of panic, you know, in a state of fear. And the fact is, human nature is that as soon as you're not afraid, as soon as the, as King Agag so wonderfully says, surely the bitterness of death is past, You know, when when the when the fear is over and you're not in that situation anymore, um, the dog goes back to his vomit and the sow who was washed just gets right back in the mud because she loves, you know, she loves it in there. She doesn't want to be clean. And this is human nature. Um, So deathbed repentance is kind of a sketchy approach. You know, the thought that, well, I'll wait and then I'll and I'll, I'll pour it on thick. And on a final day, you know, I'll I'll tell the Lord I'm I'm really sorry, uh, you know, but if there's not a daily practice before that, if that really comes out of nowhere, you can see with people that sometimes they get a scare or something and they'll sort of straighten out for a bit. And and I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it can be that you go you go right back to, you know, when you feel comfortable again, you sort of go back back to where you were. And the Lord is hoping for something more profound than that. Uh, It's not our state when we're terrified or worried or in the physical in extremis, as they say, you know, at the end of our lives or something Uh, that how we function in that state. I mean, it's important, but the, the Lord is more interested in how we function in that strange state called normal. It's kind of amazing how normal keeps creeping back in. You know, you can have these huge things happen. Everything changes and you think life will never be the same. And then that sense of normal just kind of creeps back in and you get comfortable again. And one reason for that, I believe, is that the Lord really wants us to make our decision in freedom. And when we're scared, when we're being pushed by external forces, it's not necessarily of our heart. We're responding to something from the outside that's shaken us up or something. And so the Lord wants us to get to that state of normal where we just really freely choose what our heart desires, whether it's good or good or evil. And uh, so what I want to talk about tonight, one thing I wanted to mention is that what we're trying to do here in this world is change our normal. Uh, Changing your state in terror uh, doesn't do as much for you as changing your normal, you know, trying to get your normal to a new place, your, your regular daily life, trying to get that in a better direction. And uh, that's an important preparation for heaven. In the Old Testament story, you may be familiar with the idea that the children of Israel uh, had gone down to Egypt and they became enslaved. And they were in slavery there for hundreds of years. And eventually Moses went in and told Pharaoh, let my people go. And they broke free uh, from Egypt. Uh, there's one really basic preparation for heaven that I talk about a lot in this class, which is repentance, and scripture talks about that a lot. It's very interesting to me that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, the the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Chapter 4, verse 17, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, When Paul is going forth, when Peter goes out, repent is the first thing they say. Uh, So that's a very important piece. And what repenting means, we've had other, there's one Bible study from a while ago called Repentance, the Details. And we go into all the self-examination, laying aside the evil, changing your life, all the prayer and so on. Uh, So I won't go into that tonight, but it's very interesting to me that there's also you know, some people seem to present Christianity as if if you got baptized. That's it. You know, you're done like you're saved. That's it. You're good. And now you would live a good life. That's the you know, fruits and all that kind of stuff. But basically, I've heard people say uh, you are guaranteed a slot in heaven. You know and if you live a good life after that you may get an upgrade you may get upgraded to business class or first class or something but but basically you've got a seat on the plane uh, because you got baptized. Um, uh, Swedenborg says that's a misunderstanding of what baptism means. Baptism stands for a process of washing, a whole process of repentance that we have to go through. So just the physical water is symbolic. It doesn't actually, it, physical water can't touch your sins and sort of magically wash them away. It doesn't work that way. And I'm very interested in this idea that scripture is actually teaching uh, a lot of spiritual practice after repentance. What do you do for an encore? You know, okay, so you repented. Uh, You got out of Egypt. What do you do after that? And I want to focus on this uh, calendar of ancient Judaism. It's very interesting to me. There was a lot of things on their calendar, a lot of holidays and feast days and stuff like that. There were two that I wanted to focus on. One was that there was a daily sacrifice. Let's go to the Old Testament. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I want to go to Numbers chapter 28 just read very briefly here about this daily sacrifice this was a feature of ancient Judaism every single day now to me the, the whole animal sacrifice thing is is re- repellent uh, but Swedenborg says it has a beautiful inner meaning you know it was allowed because it has a beautiful inner meaning uh, let's look at just the beginning of Numbers 28 right there dear reader
1: Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying command the children of Israel and say to them my offering my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time Mm. and you shall say to them this is is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to the Lord two male lambs in their first year without blemish day by day as a regular burnt offering a
0: regular burnt offering every single day you have this offering of this lamb go on
1: the one lamb you shall offer in the morning the other lamb you shall offer in the evening
0: yeah so this is the continual burnt offering by fire now fire has to do with love A lamb means innocence in other words a willingness to be led by the Lord and so Once you've done your repentance, you see, part of what I'm saying is that when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they just did whatever. They didn't have a particular big religious practice. There were no Ten Commandments yet. There were no books of Moses yet. You know, you're just doing whatever. You're a slave and you do whatever they tell you to do. And so... What I mean is that since I'm thinking of getting out of Egypt as corresponding to that repentance, then all those things that are that they're asked to do after that is sort of what our spiritual practice. It stands for what our spiritual practice is to be after we've done some basic repentance. You know, you lay some evil aside and so on. So what after that? Are you done? No, there's all these rules and laws and ordinances for what you do after that. And what this one thing is, this daily offering. Well, isn't that? Uh, I think it's a beautiful image. Uh, if you can set sort of the animal sacrifice aside and just think of it uh, as a correspondence, which is the way Swedenborg says the angels view it. This is a very treasured thought in heaven that every day, every morning, and every evening. Basically, it's just saying, "This is yours, Lord. Like you, you did this. You know." I want to follow you. I, I, I worship you. I thank you. And just every single morning. So it's kind of like uh, morning and evening prayers or a little reflection, you know, something like that, a, a little practice every single day. So that's intriguing to me because it's not just sort of like you know, baptize them and forget them. You know, no, it, it, there's, a, there's a thing that we need to be cultivating in, in our state. And this is good preparation for heaven because guess what? All the angels are do- doing it. You know, we're not going to fit in if we're rolling out of bed at 1045 with scruffy hair. And what? You know, and they've all been doing their worship thing. And they're, you know, they're, they're honoring the Lord. It's not a, it's their free will. You know, they, they it's something that they love to do. So a good preparation for heaven is to have some kind of daily spiritual practice, doesn't need to move mountains or anything, just a little acknowledgement of thank you. Some people read a little something in the morning or say a little prayer at night or something like that. But that's a, a, a foundational kind of every, it's a continual, it's a regular burnt offering. And the idea of the burnt offering is that the fire transforms. It says it was a su- sweet aroma, like it would rise up, you know, the Lord loves that sense of just just that worshipful state. You know, it says, I want my life to be yours. It's quite possible when you start out that, um, you know, let's say you you sleep for six or eight hours at night, the other 16 or 18 hours of your day, maybe pretty much free falling insanity uh, at first, you know, but still, if if you can get that little piece in place of like, Thank you, Lord, for another day and, you know, hoping things go well or something and then check in at night and say, thank you. You know, that's like that daily sacrifice, important practice and good, good preparation for heaven. So that's every single day. But that's not the only thing they did. I want to talk a lot tonight about the uh, these three required feasts. Let's read. So turn to the left and go back two books to Exodus. I want to go to Exodus chapter 23. I think this is the first time these are introduced here. Now in Exodus, uh, from the beginning of Exodus, you know, Moses is called by the Lord. And then he starts interacting with Pharaoh. That takes all the way up to chapter 14. And then in 15, they're freed of the Egyptians. They sing this song and they're rejoicing on the shores of, of the Red Sea. And so 15, here we are in 23. It's not... You know we're not very far into the story yet. After they just got free of Egypt, they, they, this is this is early on, and so at the time that they're told this, they are completely itinerant. They have this this uh, they they don't even have a tabernacle yet. They're just living in tents and wandering around in in the wilderness, and yet this commandment talks a lot about when you're in the holy land. uh, In other words, it sort of presumes two of the three feasts presume that you're there in the land. Uh, Oh, let's see. Okay. Uh, Pick up a verse 14. How about that? Chapter
1: 23, verse 14. That's right. In
0: Exodus. Thank you.
1: Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. All right. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, this is
0: number one, Feast of Unleavened Bread.
1: You shall eat Unleavened Bread seven days.
0: Oh, how long is that?
1: A week, seven days. Wow, seven
0: days. Okay, this is a long, that's a long feast. It's not like an afternoon or everybody meets at the tavern after hours. No, this, this is seven days, okay?
1: As I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. Yes. For in it you came out of Egypt none shall appear before me empty
0: ah so you're supposed to bring an offering and this is the time of year now the month of be i believe was the first month of the year in their calendar in their ecclesiastical calendar and it came about march or april it moved around because of the full moon and so on uh but it's Spring-ish. like springtime you know it's springtime uh, and that's when they came out of egypt okay and what's the next one
1: and the feast of harvest
0: oh number two is called harvest okay
1: the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field
0: ah first fruits of your labors and you notice it's what you sow in the field these are grains and and things like that so this is number two is the first fruits of what you sowed in the field and then what's number three
1: the feast of in gathering at the end of the year mm. when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field
0: ah okay so there are three let me pull out my graphic here for those of you who are getting visuals and i'll try to describe this for those of you who are getting the audio don't know if you can read that here in the room or online uh but i've got a sort of our calendar up across the top january february march etc just from left to right the block of the months and I put an indication about the fact that obviously the northern hemisphere, you know It's cold January February March, and then you get this warmth that peaks in like July or something and then goes down and then November December is cold again And so the Passover number one the Feast of Unleavened Bread it, it moves around a bit It's the same time. I mean, we just had it on April 23rd here uh, It's often the same time as Easter there are certain rules about how these things are arrived at, but it bounces around like Easter does over a six week period from March, middle of March to the end of April kind of thing. So I just put it there and it's a whole week. So I drew a bit of a box on there in April. That's the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. OK, because I want to talk about what these things mean. And then you've got the Feast of Firstfruits, which we'll find later is also called the Feast of Weeks. And that happens. Well, we'll describe that in a little bit. And then the third one is the Feast of Ingathering, or also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And that's way late at the end of the growing season. That's like uh, right around the beginning of October, kind of thing. Uh, that's so. This second one, the Feast of Weeks, in early June, uh, is you've got a you've got a harvest. But it's like the first stuff that grew and went all the way to to fruit. So you've got wheat or grains and so on. Uh, Much later in the year are the grapes and the olives are the last of all, Uh, you know. So the third one is gathering all these different kind of things from the, you know, that's sort of like very much like our Thanksgiving. You know, it's at the end of that whole growing season and it's it's a feast. Okay, and read on, <coughs> verse 17.
1: Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God.
0: From wherever they lived all over the land, you'd have to travel to Jerusalem. All, all, the, all the men would go to Jerusalem for this.
1: You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk.
0: Yes, now you might be excused for thinking that that last point was a little random. Um, uh, And and, uh, I may or may not get around to explaining it tonight, but actually in the inner meaning, it's very meaningful that it says that there. Uh, There's another description. Let's go to the right to Leviticus chapter 23 these are described several times in scripture and so i'm trying to think tonight about what does this mean in our ongoing lives all right you did some repentance but what are we supposed to do you know in addition to that daily sort of spiritual just gratitude and daily work and so on what else are we supposed to do look at leviticus chapter 23 let's start at the beginning of the chapter
1: and the lord god spoke to moses saying Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Ah,
0: and what's the first one he mentions?
1: Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Do not work on it. Oh, sorry. Solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings.
0: Yes, yeah, so I've talked about daily, and then you've got these three a year, but there's also that weekly. The weekly thing is also very important, every seven days, which the other calendars of other cultures at that time didn't have a seven-day week. This is where that comes from. Go on.
1: These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Mm. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover Uh
0: uh-huh 14th day of the first month so their first month started like somewhere around the the middle of March or whatever so halfway through that at twilight is when you start that Passover
1: and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord seven days you must eat unleavened bread
0: Uh uh-huh Go on.
1: On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it.
0: Okay, so the so you have seven days and the first day you don't do work. And all seven days you just eat unleavened. In other words, bread that didn't rise or, you know, no yeast or whatever. It's unleavened bread. Go on.
1: But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work
0: on it. Oh, okay. So the first day and the seventh day are no work. Now you, you work in between there, but you know you're in the midst of this feast. You're eating this un- unleavened bread. Go on.
1: And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest
0: to the priest. Oh, I think we're talking about the second one now. First fruits, right? Mm -hmm. So when you come in, so they're being told this, they're nowhere near the land. They don't know if they're going to make it. Uh, It's interesting that they're being told these specific instructions of what to do when you get to the land. And they're not in it yet. So this one, they can't, they can do the Passover where they are. They can do the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They can't do this one because this is about harvesting. They're not growing anything. They're walking around in the wilderness. It's interesting, but they're taught that this is, this is what you're going to do when you come into the land. When you reap the harvest of it, then you'll bring that sheaf of the first fruits, these are grains, to the priest.
1: Okay, keep going. Keep going. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord.
0: And then it goes on to describe how you will offer some oil. You'll offer some wine and don't eat bread in verse 14 or parched corn or green ears until you've made this offering. It'll be a statute forever. And then verse 15.
1: And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord.
0: Okay, now I was actually wrong before. This The first thing we just read It is called first fruits and you give that, but this is really the feast that we're talking about, the feast of weeks uh, where you go 50 days out, seven weeks plus a day, you go out from that time of the first, uh, of that first harvest, go on.
1: You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven They are the first fruits to the Lord.
0: Mm. And let's skip, there's a bunch of other stuff in here. Let's skip down to verse 33 in the same chapter because it describes the third of these.
1: Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month Ah. shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven
0: days to the Lord. Oh, well this one is seven days too at the end of the year, right? And this the first one was on the 15th day or the 14th was the Passover. The 15th is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was of the first month. This is exactly six months later. Right. It's on the 15th of the seventh month. Oh, that's when uh, you do this. Keep going. Keep going.
1: On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Oh,
0: where did we hear that? Go on.
1: For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it.
0: That's right. Okay. And then it goes on about these will be the feasts. And it talks about look at verse 39 on the 15th day of the seventh month when you've gathered in the fruit of the land.
1: You shall keep, keep a the feast. feast of the Lord for seven days. That's
0: right. And um, the first day.
1: On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest.
0: Aha, first day and the eighth day, Sabbath rest. This is talking about that third one, the feast of ingathering. And, and should, what does it say to do?
1: And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days.
0: What was that verb? You'll do what?
1: Rejoice. Rejoice.
0: I don't know what that means. Does anybody know what that means? You, you rejoice? We're supposed to rejoice? We're commanded to rejoice. Oh, okay. We're supposed to rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Go on.
1: You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. I get
0: this sort of seven theme here, yep. Mm.
1: You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths.
0: Yeah, so these booths were made out of these branches, like they'd make some sort of you know, dwellings, like leave your house, go live in these booths. And this was this feast of ingathering, and the booths were also called tabernacles. Sometimes, which was a word for tents and that kind of thing, you know, temporary shelter. And so they'd go live in those for seven days at the end of the the growing season when all the harvest had happened. And verse 43
1: there. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt.
0: Ah, so this is like a remembrance of when they were sojourning, when they came out of the land of Egypt. They were living in temporary shelter. So for seven days at the end of the growing season, weird, I don't know why, They have them go live in these booths or tabernacles every year as a remembrance. Um, and so Moses told the children of Israel all about these various feasts. Uh, okay, turn to the right and go through numbers and let's get to Deuteronomy. And uh, the first 17 verses here, I don't think we'll have to read the whole thing, but it does the same thing again. Chapter Chapter 16, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 16. So it says at the beginning there, observe the month of Abib, that's their first month. That's the March or April kind of early spring kind of thing and keep the Passover. And for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you forth out of Egypt by night. So you sacrifice the Passover. You eat no leavened bread. Seven days you eat unleavened bread there. The bread of affliction, it says in the Old King James. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. So again, this one too is a remembrance. It's looking back to when they got out of the land of Egypt and there'll be no leavened bread so on and so forth and six days you'll eat unleavened bread. The seventh day is a solemn assembly and then look at verse 9.
1: You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain.
0: So the first time you start to cut that harvest you say okay now we count. So you count 7 weeks until you get out to to this one the feast of weeks. That's why it's called the feast of weeks.
1: Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand which you which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you.
0: Yeah, and look at verse 13, then you've got the third one, right?
1: You skip the rejoicing. Okay. Oh. You shall well, observe. yes, you have
0: to rejoice. <laughs> Just deal with it.
1: And in verse 11, you have to rejoice. Yeah. Okay, 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. Yeah,
0: okay, the wine press. All right, so the wine is in now, all that and so on. And then what do you have to do in verse 14?
1: And you shall rejoice Don't. in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite. The stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. The
0: whole community. The whole community. You know, nobody's excluded. Whole community has to rejoice. And it says seven days you keep this, this feast. And look at the very end of verse 15. Uh,
1: because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Yes.
0: <laughs> you surely rejoice. So you have to rejoice. Now, on my list of spiritual practices, I don't know. It's just interesting that rejoicing is commanded. You know, as a preparation for heaven, rejoicing is very important. And so you see in verse 16, it says, Three times a year you have to come for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They shall not appear before the Lord empty. Uh, So these are these three feasts that are taught. Okay. um, All right. Oh, I'm itching to talk about these a little more. Okay. Uh, Let's look in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. Okay. That's the third of the Gospels. And I want to go to Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And Jesus here in the New Testament, what do we read here?
1: Now, it happened <clears throat> on the second Sabbath after the first. What The what? The second Sabbath after the first.
0: The second Sabbath after the first. <laughs> the second Sabbath. Well, the second Sabbath would always come after the first, wouldn't it? But it specifies the second Sabbath after the first. And scholars have done somersaults trying to figure out exactly what this is talking about. But the best guess that they've come up with is that this is talking about that time of the, of the Passover. Uh, you know you, you started uh, not the Passover but like you take that first harvest you know you first cut the grain then you've got seven weeks out after that and so the second sabbath after the first what are they doing
1: uh, he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them rubbing them in their hands
0: Right. so I think you're in this middle bit here you're somewhere at this time of year in May or something You know, because the grain has started to come in uh, and they're they're at the second. So the first was like you started to cut the harvest. Then you're counting your seven to the to the feast of weeks. And he's the disciples are plucking this. And the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath day and all that. And they get into this debate. Mm -hmm. So what's been striking me is that I, I wish I knew more about these feasts because they sort of form a backdrop to a lot of stories that otherwise you don't you know, like there's a setting there. There's some meaning to that story why they're eating at that particular moment. Uh, Another thing that I want to say about this first feast is that it's abundantly clear. I mean, there are way too many scriptures to deal with to mention uh, that the crucifixion happened at the Passover. You know, I mean, that that was the Passover very interesting that Jesus mapped his crucifixion right onto the Passover so that they ate the Passover meal. They had the lamb all, you know, like it was right on top of this. Not the third one, not the second one, the first one, you know, the crucifixion was the first. It was like the beginning. It was at the beginning of the year. It's like this beginning of the new season or something. It's just interesting that you'd think the crucifixion would be the end of something. You'd think it'd be up here in the fall or something, but at the end of Jesus' life and ministry. But, but he shows it as the beginning. of you know This is the beginning of the year. We're just getting started here. Um, that's very interesting to me that the crucifixion is, is mapped onto there. Uh, Let's read a little bit about the Feast of Weeks now. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 2. Now, you see you'd count 50 days. It said that. 50 days. Seven weeks plus a day. You'd count 50 days. Does anybody here happen to know the word for 50 in Greek? day. Pentecost is 50 days. Pentecost is this thing. It's the Feast of Weeks. It's the first fruits. So isn't that striking? That Jesus' crucifixion would be the Passover, and then the day of Pentecost would be the Feast of Weeks, the the first fruits. It's got to be meaningful. You know, I mean, it's on exactly that day. So uh, look at Acts So go to the right of the Gospels and get into Acts chapter two. Look at the very beginning of chapter two of Acts. The beginning of Acts in chapter one, there's been this idea that the Lord's going to come with His Spirit and inspire them with His Holy Spirit as promised and everything. And then look at chapter two.
1: When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance.
0: Yes, and... People could hear them, understand them in their own language. All these different people who were there. Why were they all there? Oh, every male was required to come for these three feasts. You had to come to Jerusalem. So they were all in town for the feast. And that happens to be the moment that the Lord takes it to the next level, you know. And there's this inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks. Now, what does that have to do with the first fruits? We'll ponder that in a little bit. Uh, And look at Acts chapter 20, if you will. So this is what I mean. It's like a backdrop to to the story, you know. And and so it seems when you first read about those feasts, they're just like, oh, this is that weird old, you know, lore from 4,000 years. You know, what does it matter to us? And yet Christianity is framed on this thing very, very, very precisely. Uh, Look at 20 verse uh, 16. Paul is journeying around and going all over creation.
1: For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost.
0: Yeah, I just like that image. He's out there traveling and he really wants to make a beeline because all Jewish males are supposed to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you know. He, he wants to be there. He, he wants to be there for that. That's a different Pentecost than the, you know, it's the same time of year, but it's years later. But he wants to get back there to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. I just thought that was striking. And uh, the Feast of Ingathering or harvest or Tabernacles. Uh, wow. Okay, let's try to find the book of Nehemiah. This will be fun. Nehemiah. So go back to your Old Testament. You go through the five books of Moses. Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay, probably easier to have gotten there by going to the Psalms go left through Job or something. But there we are at Nehemiah. And let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. And shall we start at verse 14 in Nehemiah 8. Is that what I want? I'm back in Ezra, here we go. 8, 8, 14. Okay. Uh, let's start at verse 13 there.
1: Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. Mm. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh
0: month. Now, this information had been lost, been lost for quite a while. But they said, wait, we're supposed to be having this third feast here. This, you know, we're supposed to be doing that in the seventh month. Go on.
1: And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. Mm. So it so
0: gives you a picture of where they would build these booths, right? We don't get that detail elsewhere that they, they build them on the top of their houses, out in the courtyards, all, all over the, any sort of open space. You'd have these all over town for a week. It's probably great fun because it's for everybody, it's the kids and everybody. So, you know, it, it would be fun. You know, they, they were they were and it's a feast, you know, go on.
1: So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, Mm. until that day, the children of Israel had not done so.
0: That was a bit of time, you know, a long time had elapsed that they sort of neglected to do this thing. So in the time of Nehemiah, they're resurrecting this and getting this back on the calendar. And there
1: was very great gladness.
0: they followed all the rules they even figured out a way to rejoice (laughs) and what else did they do
1: and also day by day day by day from the first day until the last Mm. day he read from the book of the law of god and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner
0: yes that's it so isn't that a great little description where they kind of resurrect this thing that had been lost where you have that third feast And um, another passage I want to read is, um, let's go to uh, Ezekiel. Okay, so Psalms are roughly in the middle of your book. Head to the right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I want to go to Ezekiel 45, I believe it is. Let's see here. 45, yeah, let's pick up at verse 21. In Ezekiel 40, the whole end of Ezekiel for nine chapters is this amazing description of a temple. It's a spiritual temple, it's a vision in heaven, a vision of the future. And um, uh, Swedenborg connects it with the New Jerusalem, the vision in Revelation. And in this new temple, I mean, nine chapters is you know it's extensively described. And here's one of the things that will be going on then. Look at verse 21.
1: In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover. What? In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover.
0: Oh, I thought that was just yesterday. You know, I thought we sort of forgot about all that. No, in this vision of the temple in the future, we'll be celebrating the Passover. This is not just a physical thing that people used to do. This is a spiritual thing that needs to happen. Go on.
1: A feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bowl for a sin offering. A
0: sin offering. And it goes on a little bit about the sin offering. And then look at verse 25.
1: In the seventh month. Oh,
0: so that was the first month. That was the Passover. And then on the seventh month.
1: On the 15th day of the month at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days Mm. according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering and the oil.
0: The oil. Isn't that amazing? So in this vision of the future, in this future temple, this thing that he sees in the spiritual world. Now, I don't know where the Feast of Weeks went, the first fruits, but you've still got the Passover and you've got the Feast of Ingathering there part of, of the deal, and it's connected with a sin offering, which is, which is interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, oh, let's, okay, let's turn to the right, and um, actually, if you go all the way to Matthew, and then we back up from Matthew, the second to last of the minor prophets is Zechariah, and I want the end of Zechariah, chapter 14, this is Zechariah's prophecy, And this prophecy, he keeps saying, in that day, this and that will happen. And in that day, and in that day, and in that day, this is what's going to happen in the future. And Swedenborg says that these are prophecies of of the, what I call Christianity version 2.0. You know, these are long in the future. And look at what he says in, in 14, verse 16.
1: And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles.
0: Oh, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the, that's the booths. That's the Feast of Ingathering. Go on.
1: And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain.
0: No rain. Mm, okay.
1: If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. Mm. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles.
0: Now, the way I read this in a spiritual way is that this is talking about that whatever these things are, they do have a benefit for our salvation because what he's talking about there is the punishment for not keeping these things means the, the the problem that you have if you don't practice these things. You, you know that when there's evil in your heart and there's false teachings in your mind and so forth, uh, that's that's a problem because you didn't keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is a vision of long and this is Zachariah predicting something long into the future. It's just uh, amazing to me. Um, Oh, I just want to read one more. Sorry about this. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John, chapter seven, that's the fourth of the Gospels there. And in John, chapter seven, verse two, what do we read?
1: Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at
0: hand. Oh, I see. So now we know when this is happening. This is at the end of the year. And this Feast of the Tabernacles is going to go on. And we're told from certain sources from that time that what they would do, they had these seven days of living in the booth. And at the end of that time period, they would go get water from the pool of Siloam and they would pour it at the base of the altar. Water from the pool on the, on the last day, that sacred day on the end of it. And they'd pour water at the foot of the altar. And then look at 7 verse 37. So this is a seven-day feast, right? And then it has an eighth day, a sacred assembly on the eighth day. And what does it say on 737?
1: On the last day, that great day of the feast. Oh,
0: the last, this is, that's the last, we know right when that is, you know? And what does Jesus say?
1: Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink.
0: And can you picture this water being poured out at the base of the altar? And he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then what does he say?
1: He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Mm.
0: So you picture that with this water. I don't know. It's a. Ama- it just sets a context. You know, it sets a context for, for what he's talking about. He's talking about this this part of the year here and the pouring of this water and saying that if you're th- come, come to me. You know, don't go to the pool of Siloam. Come to me. Uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, something to drink. And if you believe in me, out of your belly will flow these uh, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said that of the spirit which people would receive. OK, so um, now I will attempt to wrap this all up in, in a bow. This should be easy and effortless. Uh, The first thing I want to mention is that isn't it interesting that in the, you know, there was manna that would come every day. And isn't it interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, in both versions of it, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Actually, in the Greek of Luke, it says every day, give us our bread for the coming day. Uh, This idea of the daily sacrifice, you know, the need for the Lord, that's built into the Lord's Prayer. This is not old-fashioned, this is not, and it's not sort of, you got baptized and now you're done or something. No, there's, there's, a, there's a daily need uh, to be devoted by, to the Lord. It's not a static thing. It's something that develops over time. Um, another thing we didn't cover much tonight is that what did people do? So the Passover was when the Lord was crucified. The week before that, he rode into town. And what did people do? Call the triumphal entry. Maybe you've heard of it. They
1: sang and praised. And they took... Branches. Branches.
0: They took branches. My father once said to me that the children must have been confused, like this is what we do in the fall, you know, but we're at the wrong time. So isn't it interesting that they did something like the third feast a week before his crucifixion, but then went to the Passover here. Very interesting, like the end of one cycle, the beginning of another. Uh, so those, those bran- they're waving the branches and the crying hosanna, which is what they would do at this, at this feast. You know, there would be a, a thing where they'd all walk around and shout hosanna. And that's what they're doing at, at the triumphal entry. So this is, this is a backdrop. It's an important backdrop to understanding the New Testament. Okay, what I think this is talking about, Swedenborg talks about these feasts. He says that the meaning of the first one, the first one is to commemorate when you get out of Egypt. He says that basically what Egypt means, is that's a condition where false thoughts, and uh, I'd also be happy to call them evil spirits or something, where you're enslaved. You know, like where you start out is that you're in a kind of slavery. Um, And there are all kinds of thoughts that can hold us down, beliefs about, god that he's angry or he doesn't exist or he doesn't care beliefs about ourselves that we're no good or, or or whatever or we're some cosmic tragic mistake or something and uh waste of food and air and so forth uh you can have beliefs uh even just the belief that all your thoughts are your own and come from yourself All your feelings are your own. They come from yourself. You know, there can be all kinds of thoughts and feelings that keep you enslaved. And I like to think of addictions because I think they're a great sort of model of this kind of thing where there are thoughts that reinforce that. That's what the Egyptians mean, Swedenborg says. Those things hold you down. So there's certain thoughts that just keep you stuck. And what they're really trying to do, the reason I talk about evil spirits is that it's exploitative. They want to get you to do evil things to other people. So they inspire you, with you don't even know what you're doing sometimes, it's hurting other people. But you're being inspired by hell to hurt other people and they're just exploiting you. And when you feel miserable, they love your misery, they they suck up that negative energy and everything, they love that. And uh, so you're in a state of slavery. When you do some repentance and you move away from them, That's when you're at the state of the Passover, when you first get free. So it is of the utmost importance that when we get free of something like that, we are commanded to rejoice, rejoice for seven days. Now, that first one at the beginning, like nothing's growing yet. Uh, It's only the beginning of the year, but The Moses and his sister and they all sing songs on the shore of the Red Sea and they celebrate because the Egyptians are are down in the Red Sea. Once you get over those thoughts, once you have a different thought and you realize that that thought that enslaved you is wrong. You you're 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 free of that, like, you know, you're free of that. It'll be a fight. You don't want to do the dog to its vomit thing or the sow back wallowing in the mire. Don't go back. And there were times when the children of Israel longed to go back to Egypt and really wanted to turn back. Uh, It's very important to rejoice, partly because you don't really feel like it. Like, what do you? Okay, so you got free. Now you're in a miserable situation. You're an undefended bunch of people, 600,000 people wandering in the wilderness with no sort of timetable and no idea of where you're going or what you're going to do when you get there. Uh, so that sort of gives you a feeling of what it's like. And yet it's so important. Seven days of unleavened bread. Uh, the the bread is unleavened because you're in a hurry. You've got to move, you know. And uh, so that's just getting free from hell. It's very important practice for us that when you get free of something, rejoice, you know, and rejoice for a good Good long time, uh, because that, that's very powerful. You remember that it says that the uh, angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. Uh, we're supposed to f- ha- enter into that joy ourselves, leap for joy, because that's a great thing, even though we feel like, well, my life isn't anywhere yet and I don't know what's going on. But no, that's a time for rejoicing. That's a very important time for rejoicing. Then you enter the point where stuff starts to grow And what this is talking about is that once you get those false ideas, false beliefs and misconceptions out of your head, whether they're about God or you or other people, whatever, get some of that cleared out of there, then you start to see a different truth. You might be able to glimpse a little bit that the Lord loves you or life is worth living or something like that sometimes Uh, when you. Start to form that first harvest that comes up is when you for the first time start to actually See some results of following the truth So the feast of weeks or the first fruits is a time where the truth is starting to work in your life It's starting to bear fruit. So what that looks like to me is that you're following principles, you know well, I'm supposed to do this and the book said I should do that And here's what you're trying to live a better life and you're going through that motion and it's starting to pay off, starting to pay off maybe in your relationships or in your work life or in your physical health, whatever it might be. You're you're starting to do a little better because you're deploying those those principles and that, too, even though you feel like, well, it's only like the barley, you know, like we don't have any olives yet or, you know, the Lord says, hey, rejoice. This is great, you know, something fantastic, because this is going in the right direction here. You have a desire, you have a, you have a will to follow the truth, you have a love for it, you're watching it benefit other people. That's your harvest. Give that first fruit to the Lord. Say, hey, this came from the Lord. This is a miracle, because I know what it was like when I was in Egypt, and this whole thing has turned around. This is, this, is, this is great. So things are moving in a good direction. That's the Feast of Weeks and Firstfruits. And that has a lot to do with truth. And I don't know if I'm covering this pretty quickly, but um, Swedenborg also says that's compared to where the children of Israel enter the Holy Land. Passover is getting out of Egypt. The Feast of Weeks or first fruits is where you enter the Holy Land. And I noticed that all that imagery from the Pentecost, this is the Pentecost, was all about truth or a lot of it. Like it's wind. That's a truth image. People speaking in tongues. That's a truth image. You know, these tongues of of fire are coming down on them. It's not that the love is absent from it, but it's about truth. This Pentecost and everything that's about the spirit that has to do with truth being deployed. That's your okay. You're getting some harvest and things are going well. Important to rejoice at that point, even though you're not totally home free yet. But that's a very important time to rejoice. I think of Paul hurrying to be in Jerusalem for the Pentecost, you know, urgency about it. And then uh, the Feast of Ingathering, Swedenborg says, is like when the children of Israel have actually taken over the Holy Land. They've moved into Jerusalem. They've driven out the enemies when you really live there. You know, this is sort of when you walk in. This, This is when you live there. And this one, I used a different color. It's at the end of the year. This one has to do with love. The second one has to do with truth. You know, when truth really starts to pay off in your life and it's making a difference, that's the Feast of Weeks, when love takes over. So when you're doing things for people, not because the rules said you should do it or you read something or someone said that's a good idea and you're following a script and it says that, you know, when you realize, oh, there's a human being in front of me, you know, I need to love this person. I need to benefit this person in any way that I can. That's where love takes over. That's where you get the olive harvest and the grape harvest. And, uh, and the tents are actually a, a heavenly image. Swedenborg t- says that tents are an image of the highest heaven. They have to do with love. The stone buildings are more like truth. They're more like the spiritual. But the fact that they would move out and live in these tents that were made of these beautiful branches and it's all about the fruit and it's a feast. You're commanded to rejoice. The whole family's out there. The kids are having a blast. You're feasting, you know, and and you're out there for seven days, just celebrating uh, the end of the harvest. And as I say, from our Thanksgiving, we can get an idea of what this is like. And so this is giving credit to the Lord and rejoicing. So what I'm driving at is that uh, we really, really need to repent. That's very, very urgent. And that's sort of a first step. That's just a get out of Egypt kind of step. Very important. If you only get that done in your life, that's great. Good on you. But if you've done that repentance and you wonder, well, what's next? That's not the end of, of the story. Uh, there's a lot more up ahead when you get free of those thoughts, that, that thing that's been holding you down, that imprisonment that you experienced. Really giving credit to the Lord and being seriously joyful about that because it's leading in this good. You don't even know yet. You're not even in the Holy Land yet. But start rejoicing now because you, you're going to get there. And the rejoicing is, is a good practice. And then rejoice again uh, at that first fruits. That Pentecost and rejoice again, of course, when you get the harvest in. So when the truth really starts to kick in for you, when the love thing starts to kick in and all that fruit is there and you're doing good, you love to do it. The middle one is about loving the truth and doing it. The last one is about loving to do what is good and doing it, giving the credit to the Lord and rejoicing. Swedenborg uses when he's talking about these, he uses the words Thanksgiving and celebration, being glad and all kinds of language like this, like this is this is a spiritual practice. Um, I want to say that when you've been in Egypt and you were having fun there, there were flesh pots of Egypt, you know, and you were having a certain kind of delight, even though it's the wrong kind of delight. Um, you go through a long wilderness of wandering in the wilderness when you get out of there because you don't trust those delights anymore and you don't have anything to replace it just yet. So you go through this fallow period where you, you know, like life isn't as much fun as it used to be because you change your ways and, and all that stuff. That's not, that's not a fun time. You're not necessarily feeling, feeling it all yet. It's so important to rejoice at these little milestones, you know, to thank the Lord and rejoice, even though what you want is this big thing. And all you got was you know a, a tent made out of sticks or something, but uh, to, to rejoice in what you got. It's going in a very good direction and give the Lord the credit. Um, so in conclusion, we need to repent as a starting point. And after that, have a daily practice of worship morning and evening some kind of little ritual doesn't really I don't think the Lord minds what it is you know it, it changes over time but something to just spend a little time in devotion every morning every evening good preparation for heaven that's how the angels live they give the Lord all the credit and all the glory and everything it's a good way to prepare for heaven and a good way to prepare for heaven is to rejoice it says when you're persecuted rejoice in that day and leap for joy for great is your reward in heaven it's hard sometimes to do this rejoicing, you know, but it's good practice because sooner or later we're going to mean it, we're going to feel it. And uh, the angels, um, Swedenborg says they, they don't really like to be around sourpusses and, and, um, and people who are all sort of full of merit and torment of their martyred, miserable lives, and, you know, and, uh, the angel's just like, well, we're getting stuff done. I don't know. You know, it's fun. Yeah, and uh, uh, so learning how to rejoice is an important practice and to share that with others, with everybody and to, and to rejoice together on the good things that are going on while we're on, on this long journey. How's that? Is that okay? <laughs> good. Let's close with a prayer, shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for the miracle of your word, how many things are hidden within it. So much depth will never exhaust the treasures through all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for opening up your word, giving us a little glimpse of what's in there. Help us, Lord, with our practice of rejoicing. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Rejoice. Rejoice. <laughs> Party!
1: <laughs> Part- <laughs>